If you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will be in starting in verse 14 and I'll read all the way through verse 21. One of the things we believe the Bible teaches about uh, ministry and about the church is that really everything falls under the umbrella of shepherding. So whether it's preaching or whether it's small groups or whether it's hospital visits or one-on-ones, counseling, everything is about shepherding because that is how Christ shepherds his sheep. One of the comforts from that is that we believe that uh, even the, the, the calendar and the schedule and when we come to certain texts, uh, that that is exactly what the Lord would have us here in that moment. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer would live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do trust that you send ambassadors uh, all across the world, uh, even in this hour. Uh, Even hours before this and some other time zones and hours after this. But on this Lord's Day, you have sent ambassadors so that we might be reconciled to you. And so, Father, would you do that work through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and that you would bring us to you so that we might see how to live all of life in your presence. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. What is it that is influencing you most in life right now? Well, our world is often trying to tell us what is most influential, and kind of a whole array of things that you could see when you go to the internet, which never lies, uh, is things like your own personality, your diet, the surrounding aesthetic of your life, modern media, cultural values, ethnicity, emotions, or self-love. But there are even more prominent theories where Uh, several people, prominent psychologists through the years say these are the most influential things about you. One idea is to say that your genes are everything. Another idea is to say that 
your parents and your family dynamics that you grew up with, that's just who you are and nothing else. Another uh, famed psychologist named Carl Jung said, you are your inner child. Another psychologist named Sigmund Freud said that who we were as a child and those experiences, that's who we are and that's it. Another theory says that you are either oppressed or the oppressor. You are either minority or majority, and that is the theory of intersectionality. And there's another theory that says you are your trauma. Y'all probably heard a lot of these today. And we often in the world today say that these things are everything about who you are. In all these theories... There are major, significant ways in which they depart from scriptural truth. Even when they can be accurate in certain points, we can make the major mistake by saying that this theory or this idea is the most important thing for me to understand who I am and what I need. For the past 10 to 12 years in ministry, I've actually seen this problem across different ages, ethnicities, geographic locations, and what's happening is that as people and as professing Christians adopt these worldviews, what is happening all across is that lives are being destroyed, relationships are diminishing, and churches are floundering. And it is true to say that too many Christians today are being significantly led astray by many of these things. Because they are not holding their life under the authority of Scripture. And really, the reason why we adopt a lot of these other theories and say that this is everything about who I am is this. Is because really we are self-obsessed. And that is our biggest problem today. One author calls this phenomenon of self-obsession today, she calls it the pornography of self. And here is what God tells us. Here is what his word tells us. What is the biggest influence for who you are? And it's this. You are either in Christ or not. You are either united to the Lord Jesus Christ or not. That, regardless of your age, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your class, regardless of your personality profile, that right there is your biggest influence. And the Bible is unapologetic about it. You see, one of the problems in the church of Corinth is precisely our problem today is that we are trying to have other things influence us more than God and His Word. They were letting these other celebrity preachers or speakers try to lead them astray. They were thinking about all these other hobby horses. They were letting something or someone other than Christ control them most. And isn't that exactly what is happening to us today? And isn't that exactly what's happening with us often with our constant presence on social media? Even if you're not on social media, you're still swimming in the waters of self-worship every day. And unfortunately, 
it is a tragedy to see how many self-professing Christians have lost a biblical worldview. One author says, over the years I've concluded that the world we live in is no less charged with the grandeur of God than the world lived in by the biblical authors and our ancient forebears throughout history. Rather, instead of, instead of God getting out of the world, rather what has changed is the story we've been told about and what we've believed about our world. Some would say that's not a story, but more so like a spell or black magic. I believe something like this is what's happened to us, at least in his eyes. The story of secular materialism that we were baptized into in our school days, which has blinded us to an enchanted, sacral world that is right in front of us. This story has changed the way we perceive reality. And the story of secular materialism has taught us how to naturally reduce all things down to merely their material components and to render them meaningless. What he's saying is that as we have neglected God and as we have merely been just following our emotional whims of the day and only thinking about things that are fleshly, well, it very much makes sense that the most real thing to us is self. Because we have forgotten God, we have obsessed over self. That is precisely where the gospel transforms us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a good news that gets us out of the curse of being self-obsessed and to look at Christ so that we might learn how to live in his world. Amen? Maybe you're visiting our church this morning. I like to say amen because that means I believe and I want to know you believe. And really the question comes back to this. What is it that influences you most today? What is it? Or as to use the Paul, uh, use the Paul, use the word Paul uses in verse 14. What is it that controls you? When Paul uses this word in verse 14 for control, that word means to hold things together. It means to take custody of something. It means to have this thing as your biggest influence in life. The word is actually used in Greek literature as a picture of a city that is taken siege and taken control of. So when Paul says, and really it's not just Paul, it's God through Paul saying, the love of Christ controls us. This is what the Christian is. The Christian is someone who is controlled by the love of Christ and is learning to be controlled by the love of Christ beyond all things. Regardless of anything else that we might think is influential and anything else that might be true and helpful to think about, the biggest problem in all of our relationships and in all of life, the biggest problem is our sin. But this is what the gospel of grace does. It doesn't come to nice people who have things going pretty well. It comes to real sinners with real sins who have made a mess of things. And the gospel comes... And Jesus Christ says that if you come to me, all your sins are forgiven. 
and I will live in you and help you learn how to live a new life. Amen? That's what the gospel of grace does. That is why we need to be controlled by the love of Christ. But if we want to understand what it means to be controlled by the love of Christ, well, we need to understand what the love of Christ is. So look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us, and now Paul is going to explain what that love is. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is the love of Christ? The love of Christ is self-sacrificial. Self-sacrifice means to lay down your life for the greater good of someone else. I've told you this story before. It's a real-life story. On November 13th, 2021, Mike Perdue was one of four people killed in a small plane crash near Michigan's Beaver Island. There was only one survivor in that crash, and it was Mike Perdue's 11-year-old daughter, Lainey. And when Miss Perdue, Mike's wife, when she heard about the crash, she rushed to the hospital to see her doctor. And she said, reporting about what it was like to talk to her daughter, she said, Lainey told me in the hospital that her last memory is that her dad just grabbed her while the plane was on the way down, and he held her really, really tight. And in my heart, I know that protected her. Well, the article goes on to say that, matter of fact, that is what protected her. Because Lainey Perdue was only injured on one side of her body thanks to her father's loving embrace. He died for her greater good. That is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrificial love is giving up one's life for the greater good of another. And that's exactly what we see here uh, in 2 Corinthians 5. We see that he died for us. He laid down his life for our salvation. And this was no ordinary self-sacrifice. This is self-sacrifice of the Son of God who took on flesh. Amen? He is human, but he is not merely human. This is the same one at whom angels cover their faces in his presence. This is the one in whom in whose presence all of creation on that last day will be silent as he opens the seals on judgment day. This is the one who is such of infinite beauty that all beauty in creation merely participates in him. As one theologian, John of Damascus, says, he is the uncreated, complete, creator, all-sovereign, He is the accomplisher of all things, the Almighty, infinitely powerful, the Lord of all creation, not its servant, who fills all but none can fill him, is participated in but does not participate, who sanctifies others but is not himself sanctified. He is unlimited, immutable, invisible, the source of all goodness and justice, intellectual light, inaccessible in holiness, a power unknowable by any standard of measurement. Amen? That is who died for sinners. My friends, do you know this God? 
Do you know this God and what he has done for you? That as Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak, not when we were strong, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, not the godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. How different from our current age where we demand everyone to love us or else. How contrary is our age to the love of Christ and the gospel of grace. My friends, God does not love you because you love him. God does not continue to love you because you made a promise to love him. He loves you, and that is the reason why you love him. Amen? It wouldn't be a very great love if he said he would love us according to the measure of our love for him. But Christ is the one who died for us so that we might live. Christ's love for us is self-sacrificial. <laughs> and the greater love that, or the greater good that this love brings is, it's incredible. This love brings to us spiritual eyes that we might see true reality. This love brings to us the faith to realize that there is such beauty in creation and it is all from him. This love is what restores broken relationships and begins ones that would have never happened. This love guarantees our destiny to be in a place where there is no more evil, no more chaos, no more danger. A place in which every tear will be wiped away, where death will be no more. Where there will be no more mourning, no more crying or pain, but only infinite beauty and joy. Where the waters flowing look like crystal and where heaven's radiance is something like jasper and pure gold. But the greatest good is not merely that. The greatest good is that you get God. Amen? The greatest good about his love is that God gives himself to us. He is the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And when he has placed his love upon you, he's placed his love upon you in a way that is covenantal. What does that mean? It means when God placed his love upon you, that that love would be unbreakable, unquenchable, unconditional. It means that his love cannot tire out. It means that his love cannot be hindered. It means that his love cannot increase or decrease because he is infinite love, and infinite love cannot increase or decrease. Amen? So you must repent of the idea that whenever you sin that you think God loves me less. Repent of that idea. Because his love for you never changes. Amen? This is why Romans 8 says that his love can never separate us from himself. Or, that, or excuse me, that his love that 
protects us, nothing can separate us from him. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Not death or life, angels or rulers, things present nor things to come. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing in creation, not even your own sin or your sinful nature from the past, present, or future. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Shouldn't this love change the way we relate to people? How would it not? And this is why Paul says... The love of Christ controls us, and then in verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. My friends, we have to repent of the idea that self-love is most important. It is not. It is antithetical to Christianity. The love of Christ is most important. Amen? Self-love is puny. Because you are a finite fallen being and you can never love yourself the way Christ loves you. And that love of Christ, it gets us out of ourselves finally so that we might learn to love God and love others. Do you think Mike Perdue's daughter, Lainey, do you think she would ever forget what her dad did for her? Do you think that might influence the way she loves her future spouse and children? My friends, how much greater when we understand the love of Christ. Jesus says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, Jesus doesn't just love you, he likes you. He is more thrilled to be with you than you're ever thrilled to be with him. Do you know that Jesus was more excited to come here right now to show up spiritually, to preach his word to you, his love to you. He was more excited to do that than you were to come hear it. And he does not love us because we are lovely. Whew, thank goodness. Grace jokes with me because on my <laughs> sick days or off days or overcast days, I tend to watch reruns of either Harry Potter, or The Hobbit, or Lord of the Rings. Um, I was watching one of the Hobbit movies the other day, and, and they showed the orcs, and I just thought, they are disgusting. <laughs> you ever thought about that? They're described uh, by J.R. Tolkien and other Tolkienites, uh, brutish, aggressive, ugly, malevolent beings. They were a true horror to look at, ugly and filthy. They are the exact opposite of what the elves were supposed to be, who were supposed to be examples of goodness and love and beauty. And it dawned on me as, as, I, as I was looking at the orcs thinking, man, nothing, no fiber in my being would want to be friends with an orc or think about having any mercy on an orc. And it's so funny how God works because it was right there when I realized 
that is a depiction of sin. And we are sinners. You have far more, as it were, orcishness in you than you ever want to admit. And matter of fact, often what we do is we come in here and we do all we can to mask who we really are. But Christ sees straight through it. Your mask, my mask, are just like the clothes that they tried to make in the very beginning. And they were puny and God saw that Adam and Eve were both naked and that those clothings would never do. In our sinful nature, we are indeed more ugly and more filthy and more brutish and more malevolent and more a horror to look at than the orcs. And that is who Christ laid down his life for. Amen? Even now, as Christians, we still have remaining remnants of that orcishness in our hearts. And it still comes out to play at times. And sometimes we get a glimpse, a glimpse of it, and that's why we often say, whoa. But do you know what never changes? The love of Christ. The love of Christ never changes. And he is committed through all of our, as it were, our orcishness, our depravity and sin and wretchedness and wickedness. He is committed to bring us all the way to glory. Nothing will stop his love. Amen? That's what he died for. And my friends, that's the love of Christ that should control and change all of our relationships. Because what Paul is saying here <clears throat> is that his relationship with the Corinthians and all of his ministry and all of his church life, it is dramatically most influenced by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that is rewriting our nature, that is renewing us, that is transforming us. And it is also the love of Christ that motivates us and teaches us and shows us how to love other people, especially when they are most orcish. And notice what the Bible gives for the plan for how do people change. Notice that what God gives us for motivation, for power, and prescription. He gives us the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When Paul says it is the power of God for salvation, he does not merely mean for someone's entry into the Christian life. It's not merely for conversion. It is for their whole life. The plan for your conversion and your change never changes. It is the gospel. Amen? In all situations, in all tragedies, in whatever there could be, what do you need most? The gospel of the self-sacrifice of Christ. While things like communication skills can help. That's not what you need most. It's not understanding more about your personality profile. It's not understanding triangulization, not dismantling power structures, not creating boundaries, not finding the right aesthetic or whatever it might be. What you and I desperately need most is the gospel of grace. 
I'm telling you, there's so many distractions out there that are getting Christians right and left, hook, line, sinker. And this is our anchor because this is the only power that is out there. One thing we must remember is that even when you can find bits of truth here and there, none of those other things are described as God's power. The gospel is. This, this is, must, must be our foundation. It must be the walls, it must be the roof, it must be the furniture. I am clearly not passionate about this at all. But how does it change things as central, this relationship, things like marriage? <clears throat> well, for one, in all of our marriages, or if you're about to get married, what you first and foremost need to remember is that you individually and your spouse are not first and foremost married to each other. You are married to Christ if you're a believer. Your marriage will end. And you are merely escorting your spouse to the gates of glory for the true bridegroom. And Jesus Christ loves you and your spouse far more than you could ever love each other. If we had any idea of what our spouse will look like as they see Christ in the beatific vision and their glorification and their transformation, if we had any idea how beautiful they would be, I would imagine that that would have us repent of all scorekeeping and all bitterness and all unjust anger. You see, this self-sacrificial love of Christ, it changes our marriages in even very practical ways. It changes the way we think about our own interests. Instead of only thinking about my personal interests all the time, and I told Grace yesterday as I was putting this together, this is very convicting, uh -huh, so I'm sitting under this too. But instead of only thinking about our own interest, we must make time to embrace the interest of our spouses. For our schedules, we must repent of giving our spouses leftovers of our time. But we also need to repent of demanding our spouse to orbit everything around us. And our priorities. The biggest thing about marriage is this. What is the greatest priority of your marriage? It is your sanctification. And that actually means that in a marriage that is learning to live in light of the gospel, that we learn to put everything else in a secondary position because only one thing is primary. Christ. And that actually means that the way the Bible teaches us about how people grow and what the means of grace are, that is why the Bible would tell all marriages that the church and the frequent gathering of the church and the means of grace is central in your marriage. You can't expect to grow in your marriage if we're barely coming into church. Even the way we think about our identity and our reputation and our status, what we must remember is we have to stop and we have to repent of thinking primarily about me and we need to learn to think about we. We are not two individuals in a marriage. It's the marriage. We've become one flesh. 
even our dreams, our aspirations, our desires, some of those we very much, even our careers, for the sake of the health of our marriage, there are times when we lay those things down because it is better to have a healthy marriage than to accomplish all of your career dreams. Financially, physically, <clears throat> my money and my body very clearly in Scripture says that it is not merely mine, but it is the marriages. You know what's awesome? Is that when both spouses learn to live in a self-sacrificial way, not only are you giving, but you're also receiving. But when both spouses have the posture of saying, I'm going to do my thing and you're going to do your thing, then you're not only not giving, you're not receiving. You see, the gospel of grace eliminates insecurity. Because if we know and we're for sure that we have been justified in Christ, then I am absolutely sure that God's infinite love is upon me. Then I can love my spouse with no fear. And I don't have to try to be their Messiah. And I don't need to, and I definitely need to repent of this. I need to repent of trying to be the Messiah. And I need to repent of treating them as if they could be my Messiah. There's only one Messiah. Now, what the tempting part is, <clears throat> for those of you who have a spouse who is not practicing this, the tempting part is to kind of nudge them on the shoulder or kind of give side glances to say, I hope they're listening to this. Or you're tempted to respond with bitterness saying, I deserve better. Or, I told you so. But my friends, you must remember that any biblical conviction that you have is purely by the free grace of God. No matter how sinful our spouses are to us, the doctrine of sin teaches us that we, without God's grace, could and would be just as sinful. And that the greatest love that we can give our spouse is to see them in light of the blood of Christ and to pursue them in that way. Now, there are couples who have seen God's grace upon their marriage and praise the Lord. And maybe what you're tempted to do when you, you feel like the Lord has grown you in your marriage, you're tempted to look at other marriages in the church or outside the church and say, yeah, they need to get it together. But the same thing can be said to you. The only reason why you are the way you are is because of the grace of God. Now, there are those spouses who you need to think about your own life because you're not loving your spouse in this way. And your greatest problem is that your God is too small. You've underestimated your sin and God's holiness, and you've overestimated your own abilities and your strength. And you have sought too much to be God. You failed to be stunned at the greatness of God and the infinite descent of the Son and the riches of mercy of the Holy Spirit. And what you need most is to be drowning in the gospel of grace and in the depths of his love. Amen? John Piper once 
<clears throat> preached a sermon on Isaiah 6, the text where the angels are around the throne and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. And in his preparation of this sermon, uh, he really couldn't think of much very practical application. And so his goal was say, I- I'm just going to preach a glorious God and just see what happens. He preached a sermon, and at least as the story goes, at least my recalling of it, preached a sermon and no real major feedback or change after the service, kind of just still the same normal thing. Um, let that, for any of you aspiring preachers, give you confidence that even John Piper uh, can feel like he has an off sermon. Um, but then about, as I recall, about six months later, uh, a married couple came up to him. And they said, hey, we want you to know that that Isaiah 6 sermon saved our marriage. Do you know why? That while practical things are, are very helpful and we need to, the gospel does apply practically, it does. But the biggest thing above anything else is we need to see the glory of God and the grace in the gospel. That is what our marriages need most. But we also need this self-sacrificial love in our families. A lot of this can be carried over into the family portion as well, things like our time and schedule. Even things, and particularly things such as our priorities. Because once again, the scripture says what is most important for our families is to be intimately involved in the life of the church. Because at one point, we too, when we die or when our children die before us, we are leaving them in the Lord's hands. Really, they are not our children, they're His. And that means that the church and the family are never rivals, but rather the family grows as a family as they are intimately involved in the life of the church. And often that means that we need to say no to many other things in life so that we can say yes to the spiritual health of our children. When it comes to things like comfort, the materials, money, organization, hospitality, there's no hard and fast rule for these things. But sometimes we have to sacrifice our own comfort so our kids can have fun. And sometimes, kids, you need to sacrifice your own comfort so your parents can have a breather. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says, Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Sometimes you just need to invite people over and the house is still a little bit messy. But you're sacrificing that comfort so that you can bring someone in and love them, maybe at a very pivotal moment. But this also applies to relationships in the church. If Christ's love for us is self-sacrificial, then we must all be repenting of trying to be somebody. I remember one of my mentors told me this when I was very much struggling with pride and thinking about that idea of being somebody in ministry, and no doubt that is still there, that I must always put to death. But I remember he told me this. 
He said, godliness is far more important than giftedness. And the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to lay down our lives so that Christ may be seen to be the somebody. And that means that as individuals, sometimes we must learn to sacrifice our own personal goals for the sake of God's glory and the true health of the church. Sometimes it means we need to sacrifice our reputation for the sake of being faithful to God and his word. And that means that sometimes people will not like us. It also means sacrificing what might bring a lot of people in in order to be faithful. We're going to get those emails. We're going to have to have those conversations, and they're hard. And trust me, it will be tempting to sacrifice truth just so that you can bring someone in. But Christ laid down his life so that we might be brought to God. Mark Dever says, In cultivating a a culture of mutual love in the church, we want to make sure we encourage people to place a high priority on the corporate life of the congregation not simply on their own individual walks with the Lord. The nature of the Christian life is corporate because the body of Christ is a corporate entity. We could frankly go on and on about how the self-sacrifice love of Christ, it just applies to every bit of life. But what we must remember is this. This is why our church is for the gospel of grace. Because you and me are never going to be able to do this. You can say amen to that. (laughs) This is why Christ died. He died so that we might have the power to live more and more unto him. Some of you have not seen this type of transformation in your life because, frankly, you are not born again. And you must be born again, and you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Others have not seen this type of transformation because you still have much more to grow. And that's not being judgmental, but it's trying to give us all realistic expectations of realizing, yeah, Christ is always maturing us and sanctifying us. Others of you have been growing very significantly, and you're still always, no matter how mature you might be, you're in continual need for God to strengthen you. Brothers and sisters, the biggest need above all is that you and I must know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, regardless of your sin, regardless of how messed up your relationships are, if you believe in him, you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is only by your mercy that there is even a church here. It's only by your mercy that we have the word and that we have this table. And we thank you that in your mercy you give us these means of grace so that we might be converted and that we might grow. Father, as we partake in the sacraments, seal these truths upon our hearts. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name.